Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we turn to Indonesia and discuss the first two years of President Joko Jokowi Widodo's term in office. October 2016 marks the two-year anniversary of President Widodo's time in office. Widodo, better known as Jokowi, the former mayor and governor-elected president, faced enormous expectations succeeding former president Yudhoyono. To get a sense of how Jokowi's time has gone in charge of the world's most populous Muslim country and the largest democracy in Southeast Asia, we turn first to Southeast Asia expert Fong Nguyen. She explains evaluation of Jokowi's time in office must take into account the sky-high expectations he faced when he started the job. A survey conducted in June and released in July of 2016 shows that about 60% of people survey um, say that they are satisfied with Jokowi's performance and about 30% say that they are dissatisfied with him and 32% say that they would vote for him yet again if elections were held today. Um, so what that tells you is that his star power um, has waned because his approval rating was about 70% or more when he took office. So yes, his star power has waned, but his popularity has improved actually from a year before when there was widespread disappointment uh, with him, uh, not so much because of his performance, but because the expectations for him uh, were very high, as you noted. So yes, he has improved from a year ago. And why his star power has waned, he has consolidated his political authority or foundation. Um, Jokowi was a political outsider, and maybe he still is to some extent. And he is not the head of his own party, the, the ruling PDIP. So what he has to do is to build his own circles um, when he came into office and sort of he has to strengthen his own circles as every year goes by and as he wants to push reforms forward. We asked Natalie Sambi, a research fellow focused on Indonesia at the Perth U.S. Asia Center, whether Jokowi has met those expectations. There's certainly been high expectations of Jokowi, both in terms of domestic politics and foreign relations. I think there was an expectation that Jokowi would be a reformer, uh, that he would have a grassroots agenda and he'd be more internally focused, and that would ultimately be a good thing as well in his dealings with, with foreign partners. I think to a certain degree, some of those expectations have been met. I mean, looking over the past two years, he did progress the system of national health care, um, you know, which has had varying levels of success. He's also focused on upgrading infrastructure, ports and roads, and he's pursued a foreign policy of encouraging foreign investment, but has also cracked down on narcotics and illegal fishing. So I think all of those things are consistent with the expectations. Um, I think his image of being an anti-corruption crusader has been a little bit patchy. Uh, and I think we know, you know, sometime last year when he nominated uh, a graft suspect as head of police, that left a lot of people, not only within the country, but external observers a little bit confused. Um, but I think there's one thing uh, I'd like to point out in terms of expectations over the past few years. Perhaps some have underestimated Jokowi's ability to, to be a political maneuverist. I think a lot of people saw him as a newcomer at that national level, and that being a whole different ball game to the gubernatorial and uh, mayor-type politics he's been used to. But I think he's exceeded expectations in managing power dynamics in his party uh, and in his cabinet between oligarchs, political patrons and influential actors. And I'd be interested to see how that might translate to the way in which he conducts himself in foreign relations as well. 
The key issue for Jokowi is improving Indonesia's economy. To that end, he has initiated a series of efforts to deregulate industries and improve infrastructure. Fang Wen explains. Has he met expectations? He has done a lot um, since taking office. First of all, he scrapped most fuel subsidies just a month after taking office. His government has launched 13 deregulation packages that are aimed at improving the business environment, cutting red tape, attracting foreign investment. Um, and at the moment, the, the government is still working on follow-up regulations to implement all of these deregulation packages. And there are efforts underway to push forward large infrastructure projects across Indonesia and especially in less developed areas outside of Java, the main island, and also efforts to um, reform the uh, the state-owned enterprise sector to the extent that the government wants to best tap into the resources that are allocated to these companies. And what his government is looking to do is to organize Indonesian SOEs into six major holding companies for the main economic sectors. So you have energy, um, you'll have natural resources, you have infrastructure, um, and there'll be holding companies that are in charge of activities and investment within their own sectors, and, and that is still being underway. But he has had a hard time communicating to the people, showing to the people that his efforts so far have produced tangible benefits for day-to-day -day lives and just in terms of providing basic necessities to the people. Um, and it's because the expectations for him were so high that people expected to see results right away. And he hasn't been very forthcoming about how much of um, the reform efforts that he announced have been implemented or to show people that, yes, I have actually made an impact, a difference. So to that extent, you know, people felt still that he is not meeting their high expectations. In addition to pushing deregulatory reforms, Fung argues that a signature accomplishment for Jokowi is his courage in shifting the country's economic conversation to one where improving Indonesia's competitiveness is central to the dialogue. So as I mentioned before, uh, his government is still refining most of the reform packages that they roll out. And we're still um, seeing him juggle between politics and economics, being a political outsider and a reform-minded leader. But I think, uh, in my opinion, his principal achievement so far has been um, shifting the discourse inside Indonesia on economic nationalism. Um, Jokowi is the first president in Indonesia to talk openly about the idea that Indonesia needs to improve its competitiveness if it is to not left behind um, by, by its uh, neighbors and if it is to become a developed country within the next decade or two. Um, there are two perceptions in Indonesian politics that are uh, pretty strong drivers for politics, elections, and just actions of government. Um, the first one is that there is just too much foreign investment, foreign capital in Indonesia. And the second one is that Indonesia imports too much from other countries um, and it does not export enough. 
So he has to talk about these two perceptions in order to sort of instill his reforms within the bureaucracy. And he has time and again, being a populist leader, um, he has time and again spoken about the need for Indonesia and Indonesians to step outside their comfort zones, to not fear globalization, and to point out that economic integration is a must for Indonesia to um, move up the value chain. And that is very important in the Indonesian context um, for a leader to go out and, and talk about that openly. And it, I, I think it takes a, a reform-minded leader with vision and courage to talk about that to his people. Um, so that is unprecedented in the Indonesian context. And if he can even just make a minor impact on the domestic discourse on these issues, then I think that would still leave you know, um, a, a foundation for successors to follow, um, assuming that future Indonesian leaders are reform-minded. In order to push through his agenda, Jokowi has shuffled his cabinet on two occasions to get better political results. With the second cabinet reshuffle this year that you pointed out, I think he has emerged stronger um, than he was last year. As we noted, he is a political outsider, and it is important for him to have the right people in the right portfolios if he wants to push reforms forward. So with this second reshuffle this year, what we've seen is he put several technocrats, reform-minded people, in key positions. We have former Trade Minister Thomas Lambang, who was moved to head their Investment uh, Promotion Bureau, the BKPM. And we have former Finance Minister Sri Mulyani, who was until recently a managing director at the World Bank, being uh, moved back to head the Finance Ministry in order to carry out the government's fiscal plans and um, efforts to improve Indonesia's tax base. Um, and that is important because he wants to attract more foreign investment and he wants to better allocate public investment inside Indonesia to infrastructure and other welfare schemes that he has advocated for. But at the same time, he has had to do a lot of horse trading in order to garner support for himself among other political parties outside of his own. He's not ahead of his own party and he's not in control for a lot of what is going on inside his own party, but he has good political instinct and he knows how to play parliamentary politics so that he can have the support of other parties in the Indonesian parliament. So yes, it's a mix um, of technocrats um, and um, political appointees, but at the same time he has emerged stronger with each reshuffle. And that is important because for the last two years people have pointed out that he was not always in control of his own cabinet. You had officials bickering with one another, disagreeing openly with one another, and sometimes with Jokowi himself. So it's important for him to address that, remove some of the people who didn't strongly support his agenda, put in place key people who can get the job done, and um, garner support of parties in, in the parliament. Another challenge for Indonesia is civil-military relations, which have come a long way since the Suharto and Sukarno days. Natalie Sambi discusses Jokowi's relationship with the Indonesian military thus far and the importance of former military leaders in his governing team. The area of civil military relations in Indonesia has been an interesting one lately. I mean, it was certainly an area 
that a lot of political scientists and other analysts were delving into just after the fall of the military dictator Suharto and his regime and how the, that relationship with the military having been in politics for so long would pan out. And I think for a while that kind of slowed down interest in that area ground to halt and it was seen, Indonesia was seen as a you know strongly civilian democratic country, well functioning under SBY. Um, and then that would that trend would continue with a civilian president in the form of Jokowi, a civilian grassroots president. But it's been very interesting. Jokowi himself is not deeply interested in defense issues, uh, with the exception that he's made general statements about maritime defense and defending Indonesian sovereignty. For the most part, he's not delving deeply into that area. But that's not to say he doesn't recognize the influence of the military. And I think that's an area where civil military relations in Indonesia has now become uh, kind of of interest again. And and what I mean from that is even though he doesn't come from a military background, Jokowi has recognized and utilized uh, military figures in exchange for influence. And so I think some other analysts, you know, Aaron, as you as you mentioned before, has have written about this. One of Jokowi's closest advisors, Luhud bin Zapanjaitan, is a former four-star general in the Indonesian army and a successful businessman. He's been given these various key appointments in Jokowi's cabinet since he's been elected. Uh, and, you know, the first of that, not only just being chief of staff, but Lukud was promoted to the coordinating minister for political, legal and security affairs. You know, the significance of which is that that ministry, the coordinating minister, sits above 12 other Indonesian agencies, which includes foreign affairs, defence, intelligence, the military and the police. So seen another way, the coordinating ministry... Uh, the position, although has been relatively benign in the past, with the right kind of actor, like Luhud, um, can translate into a greater discipline within the cabinet and perhaps have a shaping role for those kinds of policies. So it's interesting, again, to see how Jokowi, under Jokowi, this sort of military influence takes another form. And, uh, you know, just as to follow up on that point, the job in the latest reshuffle now belongs to another former commander of the Indonesian Armed Forces, and that's General Guanto. So there is, again, another position, and Lukud has been moved on to another another portfolio, but there's the presence of these military-related people. And even though they're retired uh, in, the, in the Indonesian context, a lot of these individuals retain a modicum of influence uh, and strong partnerships within the military itself. So for the purposes of Jokowi, he's been able to either leverage their influence and to also balance competing interests within his party and within his cabinet as well. So I think it's this interesting emerging area to see where is this going to go and to what extent do some of these individuals, including the current defence minister, Riyam Izzad Briyakudu, who's also a retired Indonesian army general, have a bearing on the way in which defence policy is developed if Jokowi isn't going to have a direct hand in it, um, you know, but for the fact of broadly pushing maritime defence. What does that actually mean in the practical unfolding of Indonesian defence policy, will Indonesia's naval and air force uh, force capabilities be upgraded, or will there be again an emphasis on the land dimension of, uh, of of Indonesian security? So those are the questions I would ask. Those are the things that I would point to because I think it's part of the way in which defence policy is is developed um, in in the Indonesian context also relates to the political context, obviously, in which it's, it's situated. And that political context at the moment is now being infused with more of these military figures. Because of his focus on domestic development, Jokowi's broader foreign and security policy is often overshadowed by trade and foreign investment issues. However, there are still important questions for Jakarta. 
I have to say that Jokowi is not a foreign policy president. Um, he his focus is on domestic reforms, and to the extent that diplomacy is involved, he has always sought to make trade and investment the focus of his international engagement. So um, that is the starting point. But there have been important developments in foreign policy since he took office. The first one that most people um, noted is his government's um, lesser emphasis on the role that ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, plays in Indonesia's foreign policy. Under the previous um, administration of former President SBY, ASEAN was considered the cornerstone of Indonesian foreign policy. And um, Indonesian leaders, for a long time, always um, sought to portray themselves, portray Indonesia as sort of the spiritual leader of ASEAN. But under Jokowi, since he is a very practical thinker, he wants to cast his net wide um, wherever it may take him in order for him to derive economic benefits for Indonesia. So there has been um, a lesser focus on ASEAN. But at the same time, the second development is that the focus on nationalism has been just as strong, if not stronger, than under previous administration. And we've seen this with the blowing up of foreign ships that are caught fishing illegally in Indonesian waters. And we've also seen this with Chokowi's own response to recent fishing incidents with Chinese Coast Guard and fishing vessels in the Natuna Island area, which falls within Indonesia's exclusive economic zone. So in response to the latest incident in which Chinese fishing vessels were caught in Indonesian waters, Chokowi responded by visiting the area on an Indonesian warship, holding a cabinet on the warship, and calling forcefully for a comprehensive plan to develop the Natuna area economically, militarily, in order to assert Indonesian sovereignty over the area. So that was a very nationalistic response from his part. And we've also seen movement on the defense modernization uh, front since there has been growing tension in the Sub-China Sea and especially in the Natuna waters. This year, the government um, wants to improve the defense budget to about $8.3 billion, or nearly 10% increase from the year before. And their, the allocation to modernize um, Indonesia's defense um, infrastructure in the Natuna area has more than tripled. So that is a very overt um, example of how nationalism has translated into um, concrete policy decisions in Indonesia's defense and foreign policy under Jokowi. And there is a sense of urgency um, on his government's part in implementing all of this because efforts to modernize the Natuna area are not new. Other administrations have talked about it, but under him, it has been implemented with more urgency. Natalie Sambi argues that there are several issues that stand out when considering the Jokowi administration's approach to foreign policy, particularly sovereignty considerations surrounding the Natuna Islands in the South China Sea. So I, I think there are a few main ways, and the first starts with the appointment of Retno Masudi, who's a technocrat and, and a longtime diplomat within the Indonesian Foreign Ministry. She's seen as a safe and experienced pair of hands. Um, but with her appointment, I mean, we were never going to see the more ambitious and vision-driven foreign policy of personalities like Retno's predecessor, Martina Talagawa. 
So I think by that appointment, there was almost this expectation of Jokowi is that Indonesia wouldn't be running off to international institutions, that he wouldn't be giving the grandiose type speeches that Yudhoyono has been given, and the proclamations that Indonesia would be this visionary actor within the international system. I think there was the idea from the start that, that Jokowi would have a far more modest foreign policy, not so activist where international institutions are concerned, but certainly one that focused on pragmatic foreign relations, uh, particularly where bilateral relationships are concerned. And early on, I think Jokowi also signaled that by taking this tour of Northeast Asia where he went to Tokyo and Beijing in the same trip, uh, not only to encourage investment in Indonesian business and infrastructure, um, but I also think doing both cities at once to cleverly demonstrate that Indonesia has, has an intention to have good relations with not only China, but also with Japan. Um, and I think from that sense, Jokowi has been seen to continue Indonesia's long-standing foreign policy maxim of not only just being non-alignment, but being free, not being seen as being an either, you know, a, a pro-China camp or an anti-China camp, but actually maintaining productive and strong bilateral relations with major actors in the Indo-Asia Pacific. And now I think whether or not Jokowi's foreign policy is effective in that regard um, will depend largely on how Indonesia responds to some of the recent Chinese uh, China-driven developments in the South China Sea, um, not only how China handles the incursions and confrontations and how agitated it becomes, but uh, around Indonesia's, but also around Indonesia's Natuna Islands province. So I think that will be the major challenge uh, for Jokowi coming. You know, when you when you just look at the Asia Pacific area, um, and some commentators suggested there are limits to Indonesia's approach of being an non-climate state and an honest broker. So I think it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I don't know whether you recall not that long ago in regards to the latest confrontation between Indonesian authorities and Chinese authorities in that uh, South China Sea, which is closest to Indonesia's uh, uh, territorial waters. Jokowi then um, put together this limited cabinet meeting on a warship, uh, which I think the optics were significant, um, and then proceeded to talk about how they were going to drive further economic development in the Natuna area, um, but also military presence as well. I don't think that had a great impact on China, but I think it certainly gives an insight about how Jokowi wants to respond in terms of diplomatic signaling to these kinds of things. What that means in, in pragmatic terms and how he handles that behind closed doors, we don't know, but it's, it's just characteristic of Jokowi so far. Indonesia's involvement and leadership role in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, has not been as high as it was under former President SBY. But I think another area for us to watch, um, which has been a little bit, uh, there's been a bit of a question mark, is the extent to which Indonesia, under Jokowi, wishes to take a strong role in ASEAN, uh, the Association for Southeast Asian Nations, a forum of, of 10 Southeast Asian countries. Uh, there are many good reasons for Indonesia to take leadership uh, that don't just relate to the South China Sea. They also relate to issues like the haze, uh, the annual haze, which you know, unfortunately, has been largely caused by forest fires in Indonesia. Um, but that is a truly transnational Southeast Asian problem. Uh, and maintaining the coherence of that body, making sure that it's functional, allows it to then take those kinds of diplomatic gains and then apply them to pricklier issues such as the South China Sea. So again, ASEAN is another area where I think Jokowi's foreign policy is evolving. But he certainly has had this idea that international institutions are necessarily where it's at. He's distinguished himself from Yudhoyono in that regard, 
and its foreign policy has been marked thus far by this pragmatic reach out to those countries that can help Indonesia meet a lot of its domestic goals. Indonesia's relations with its neighbour down under, Australia, have had their ups and downs in recent years. We asked Natalie Sambi for her assessment of Canberra-Jakarta ties thus far under Jokowi. Sure. I mean, I'm going to talk about one particular incident that marks the relationship, but I want to emphasise that there are broader trends to the bilateral relationship. Um, I think the incident that has marked Australia-Indonesia relations under Jokowi's presidency, and I I emphasise under Jokowi's presidency, has been inevitably um, the executions that occurred in April 2015. Um, He was elected in October 2014, and very quickly thereafter, you know, unlike, unlike President, no, not unlike President Duterte, emphasised this need to crack down on domestic issues and health issues such as the use of narcotics among Indonesia's youth. And one such way he would do that would be to reinvigorate a program of executions against convicted um, uh, drug traffickers. Unfortunately, we had two Australians who were on death row at the time uh, who were then not long thereafter executed um, by firing squad. And that episode um, was unfortunate I mean, although it was a combination of the realities of sovereignty, law, human rights and foreign policy, I think it was significant because some parts of Australian society were left with a negative first impression of Jokowi and some parts of Indonesian society were outraged by perceptions that Australia was trying to dictate Indonesian law. So it was one of those early episodes that was unfortunately negative. Um, I would like to add to that that in November last year, I Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who was not Prime Minister at the time of the executions, He had a very positive trip to Jakarta. So as part of his Five Nation tour, Turnbull went to Jakarta and met with President Jokowi, who then took him on this personal tour and took him on one of his bluzukan, which is Jokowi's trademark hall, hallmark drop-in impromptu visit uh, to some markets. And and the two gentlemen got along very well there in a very charming fashion. You know, Turnbull said it was too warm, so they took off their ties and were a bit more relaxed, took some selfies. And I think that was a very good... Um, portrait of what could be a sense of warmth in the relationship. So I'd like to contrast, you know, what happened, you know, the unfortunate incident earlier in the year with a sense of optimism, at least at the leadership level. And I think that was, that's been a high point so far. Um, and so there have been good relations between, between leaders and I know Retnam Masudi and Julie Bishop are seen to have a productive working relationship as well. But looking at the bilateral tie, looking at bilateral ties more broadly, taking a macro view, you know, defence and security continues to be strong. Um, it'll be interesting to see which areas of counterterrorism cooperation grows and which areas contract. Um, and I say that because Indonesia's counterterrorism capabilities have grown significantly since the Bali bombings in 2002, and I think you know have culminated in the killing recently of Sentoso, who's the head of the Mujahideen Indonesian Timor, who was a a group that had sworn allegiance to ISIS. And that was an operation that was taken jointly by the Indonesian military and police. Um, And so I think that will be a signal of of whether Indonesia evaluates to the extent to which it does have to, uh, you know, deeply engage with foreign partners. Or on the other hand, will it be the case that because the Indonesian military is making a much more concerted push for the share of counterterrorism responsibility, that it will be motivated to reach out to partners like Australia and the US and the UK for more counterterrorism cooperation. So that's, that'll be an interesting area to watch. In other areas, I mean, business ties are still nascent. Business councils in both countries are still finding ways to reach out to one another. Education exchanges tend to be mostly Indonesian students coming to Australia, but we do have healthy programs at Australian universities that encourage 
uh, tertiary students to go over and work in a number of areas from education to politics uh, to women's rights and so forth. And trade remains concentrated in a few areas. So to give you know, your listeners an overall impression of where the relationship is at, two very different actors in, in the southern area of the Asia-Pacific that are trying to build stronger and stronger ties, I think the overall trend is that the relationship is stable and that even when there are so-called crises, I think pragmatism at the end of the day wins out over emotion when you take a long-term macro view of things. I think people, I think sometimes freak out a little bit too much when those things occur, but when you contextualize how Australia-Indonesia relations have unfolded over its history, I think things are actually in, in quite a good place, despite some occasional negative perceptions, um, as we found in some of the, the, uh, the polling that we've done. What should observers watch for coming down the road? Fung argues that the key question for Jokowi will be whether the Foundation for Economic Reform translates into tangible benefits for everyday Indonesian citizens. I think it's important to watch whether the foundation that he has been laying will produce tangible outcomes for the economy. It's very important because Jokowi is very well-intentioned and he is a very pragmatic thinker. But um, despite all of his reform efforts and policy decisions, Indonesia suffers from institutional weakness and decentralization over the last decade has not always helped um, Indonesia push through reforms, um, you know, at with the whole system. So what we have to see is whether all of the political um, jockeying, all of the cabinet reshuffles that he has implemented, all of the reform packages that he has rolled out, whether he can get them to all work together, synchronize, and be pushed down through, um, you know, the provincial and regency and, you know, township levels, I think that will be the hardest challenge for him. And people have said that um, you have to start at the local level in the Indonesian system for, for, for progress to start showing. And he has done it from a central level. So we have to see whether the foundation that he has laid will actually work for, for his um, reform agenda. In terms of future policy direction, Natalie Sambi highlights several issues worth tracking over the next three years. Sure. Well, I mean, as is always the case with Indonesia, there are so many things uh, to look at. So I'm going to draw on a couple of the themes that I've talked about uh, in our conversation earlier. And I think there are three things. And I'll start from the macro and work my in my way in. I think the first thing to look out for in the last three years of Jokowi's presidency, and I know it's topic de jour, uh, is how Indonesia is going to handle the South China Sea challenge. And by that, I mean, how is it going to respond to further confrontations with Chinese fishermen and Chinese authorities in its water. And as I alluded to earlier, what role is Indonesia going to play, particularly in ASEAN? You know, there's also an interesting relationship developing between uh, President Jokowi and President Duterte of the Philippines. You know, and given that there are some other dynamics going on within ASEAN, you know, Thailand is very preoccupied with domestic affairs. Malaysia has got its own um, you know, political issues that it's focused on. How are power relations in ASEAN going to look like in the next three years under Jokowi? And how will that then set up the power dynamics within the body for the next five to ten? And I think the role that Indonesia has to play is a critical one. The second, uh, as, as we talked about earlier, is I think how Indonesian civil military relations will play out. My main takeaway is the extent to which having more military actors in politics changes not only politics, but the military itself. I, you know, the, the phenomena of increased trust in military actors 
and distrust in civilian politicians isn't unique to areas of Southeast Asia. I don't want to say that, you know, we should just be concentrated on this idea that Indonesia is bucking norms of what we would see as being functioning civil military relations. Not at all. I was listening to a War on the Rocks podcast this morning with General Mattis and Corey Sheikh, where they've actually done some recent polling in the US that, that actually demonstrates this trend. So I, I want to emphasize this is not unique to Indonesia, but that doesn't mean it's not of consequence. And so I think that's an area to watch. And lastly, I think we should look at Jokowi himself. I think there's a lot to learn from his style of, of political relationship building, the patterns in the way in which he's conducting his foreign policy, and whether there is anything we can learn from the way in which his politics at the mayor level and the governor level um, have worked. Have the policies that he enacted in those levels, uh, have they lasted? Why were they ineffective? What are the lessons that we can take to how those maybe those styles and those those managerial skills he's been taking at the federal level? Um, what are his areas of weakness? Where could his strengths translate to into more effective management of politics? And will that mean more things can get done? Or will that mean the status quo of entrenching political party interests and money politics will remain? So I think it's interesting to see, you know, Jokowi as an individual, will he be successful at the national level? And I think it's a rich and complicated story that just doesn't start from the day he was elected. I think there's a lot for us to learn before that, and that will help us help us to a certain degree understand where he will be headed in the next three years. That's our show. Thanks to Southeast Asia analyst Fong Nguyen for her stellar contribution on developments in Indonesia. You can follow her on Twitter at pnguyen underscore dc. And special thanks to Natalie Sambi of the Perth U.S. Asia Center in Australia. Follow Natalie on Twitter at Security Scholar. The audio for this podcast was edited by Francis Burkham. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org or Kajadasia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our updated Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking maritime analysis in Asia. Also, be sure to check out our latest China Power podcast. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.